Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week I have a very special guest to talk about the refugee crisis. The guest is David Miliband, who is a council member of ECFR, but even more importantly than that, is somebody who was one of the the biggest brains in British politics for many uh, decades, um, and he did a lot of the most important international posts in the the cabinet, um, last served as, as foreign secretary, but was also environment secretary. And uh, before he became a minister, was also head of Tony Blair's policy unit. And since then, he has been in New York running the International Rescue Committee, which is a global organisation with 27,000 staff working in all the most dangerous and difficult parts of the world, helping refugees and working on on humanitarian assistance to, to some of the most vulnerable people in the world. David has also just produced a very short and thought-provoking book called Rescue, looking at refugees and the political crisis of our time. So, David, it'd be very interesting if we could go straight into the the whole question of uh, what the refugee crisis means for Europe. I mean, your book is is fascinating. You look at a lot of the, the myths about refugees and show how a lot of the the assumptions that we have um, about them are not grounded in, in reality. And I'd like to go through a lot of those things during the course of the, the discussion that we're going to have. But maybe could ask you to take a step back um, a few years after the crisis erupted. What do you think the sort of long-term consequences of the refugee crisis are for the European project? Well, thank you, Mark. It's very good to be here at ECFR. I'm proud to be associated with you. And through, through my membership of the council, I, I don't think I can claim to be a very assiduous council <laughs> attendee, uh, but I am supportive of the ideas and the idealism of the ECFR, and it couldn't be more important living in New York. I can report to you that it couldn't be a more important time for Europe to develop a cohesive and coherent and powerful sense of its own foreign policy destiny, because the retreat of the US is real and Europe is needed on the global stage. In respect of the refugee crisis, I always smile when, at best, when the refugee crisis is described as a European refugee crisis. Because if you're in Africa, if you're in the Middle East, if you're in South Asia, and you refer to a European refugee crisis, they either laugh or they sneer. Because, of course, the refugee crisis is felt most strongly in countries neighbouring those in conflict. So the biggest refugee hosting states are Jordan, Lebanon, Turkey. They are Kenya, Ethiopia, Uganda. They are Pakistan, uh, now Bangladesh because of the Rohingya uh, crisis. So the fulcrum of the refugee crisis is in poor and lower middle income countries. The 10 biggest refugee hosting states represent 2.5% of global income. But the European refugee crisis, of course, did burst onto the policy and political scene in 2015, uh, when a million people, more or less in the space of a year, came from the Middle East uh, to Europe and challenged many of the values, assumptions, policies of the European Union. And you asked about the consequences, and I think the consequences are quite stark. The consequences have been, first, quite a lot of suffering of the refugees who are still not being properly processed and dealt with in in some European states, notably in Greece. Uh, Secondly, There's been a challenge to European institutions who have been playing catch-up in the policy game. And thirdly, 
uh, obviously European politics has become overlain with the refugee crisis, either directly in countries that are processing a large number of refugees, Germany most obviously, or in those that are refusing to have refugees, uh, notably in Eastern Europe, but also elsewhere. So I think that as throughout history, the issue of how to address victims of conflict and persecution is not just a policy problem, it's a political problem, and Europe is a very stark example of that. So I'd like to go through some of the different policy consequences as well as the the political ones later, but maybe we could start with with policy because that's where you've been working most closely, I think, over the last few years. And as you say, you know, most of the refugees don't come anywhere near Europe. A lot of the goals of European policymaking have been to make that even more true by doing deals with local militia to stop the flow of of refugees from Libya, um, working with transit states on on readmissions, thinking about ways of pushing Europe's borders ever further outwards. I mean, if you think about the kind of mix of uh, policy challenges and the different types of responses that Europeans could have to the crisis, what do you think they are and how do you think the actual performance of the EU has measured up to? Well, I I think there are three or four parts to that answer. One, Europe needs, or European states need immigration policies, and Europe as a whole needs a refugee policy. And they need to be distinct, I would argue, because the moral and strategic and legal claim of a refugee is different than the moral and strategic and legal claim of an immigrant. And the responsibilities of states to refugees and immigrants are different, and I think it's right that they're different. It's not that one is good and the other is bad, it's that they're different. And part of the trouble, of course, is that just as in Britain in the late 90s there was a confusion between refugees and immigrants, so the debate about refugees in Europe has been um, occluded by the fact that there are unfinished elements to the migration debate. second thing that I think is really important is to recognise that organised resettlement of refugees in a planned, careful way into Europe is really a tiny element of the European refugee policy. In contrast to the US, which has traditionally taken about 90,000 refugees a year on average until the Trump administration got its hands on this policy, refugee resettlement, in other words, the organised transfer of refugees from countries of first asylum into Europe, uh, has been in the low 10,000, 8,000, 7,000 a year. So really a very um, weak response. But the other side of the protection equation is obviously for asylum seekers who are claiming refugees, not who are claiming refugee status, not in Jordan or in Kenya, but in uh, Europe itself. And there, I think um, you can uh, see that the the dire need is for fast and efficient processing of asylum claims. Because without that, you're not able to run a proper system. It's, it's essential that I say, as, a humanita- as leading a humanitarian organisation, that refugees need to be defended. But if someone applies for refugee status and doesn't get it, it's vital for the integrity of the system that they then don't pick up a refugee slot. And the, the processing of refugees has been a, a massive issue. It remains. 44,000 people in Greece still not processed. Maybe just before we yeah. go on to that, because I remember when you were in, I think you were still in the Downing Street Policy Unit, that was a massive issue in UK politics. After Kosovo, there was a Well, we inherited huge... a situation where the asylum backlog yeah. was effectively out of control. But also, partly because there were no legal routes for migration, so there were many people coming into the UK um, as asylum seekers because there were no economic routes. Well, I think that is a good point. If there isn't a legal route to hope, it stands to reason 
that you're going to pursue an illegal or undocumented or smuggled route. Now, equally, I'm not so naive as to think that if there's proper refugee resettlement, no one's going to try and find their way in. But there is interesting economic uh, uh, evidential support for this position. There was a study done in Ethiopia that where there is an effective refugee resettlement route, the risks and the costs of the smuggling route suddenly look less uh, attractive than in the absence of a refugee resettlement route. I think it's significant that the European Parliament should just have passed uh, legislation, which is going to go into the Council of Ministers for discussion, that Europe should take, according to this um, vote of the European Parliament, Europe should take 20% of the world's vulnerable refugees who are identified by the UN as suitable for refugee resettlement. So 20% of 1.2 million over five years. So I think it's important to say that unless you've got that effective route, it's then very hard to get the incentives right in other aspects of the system. But on the processing front, were there lessons to be learned from the way that the Labour Party dealt with that in... uh I mean, what do you think we can do well, in Greece? I mean, it's to actually deal not very. I mean, in essence, it's not very complicated. It's a matter of public administration, and as Germany has shown, if you throw the skill, the resource, the skills, and the systems at it, you can process a hell of a lot of people quite quickly. What we haven't seen is the European Union throwing resource and skills and capacity at the Greek end of the public administration challenge, and that's why you still have forty thousand people waiting for, to be processed in Greece. I mean, the, the third element, just so I don't lose my. Uh, train of thought is obviously you can only hold fast to the Dublin regulation that people have to claim asylum in the the country they first land, which is essentially Greece and Italy, Italy for arrivals from North Africa. You can only hold on to that if there's effective, I don't like the phrase burden sharing, but if there's effective responsibility sharing, in other words, a relocation scheme, which has been very hard to get up and running, or a scheme where those who refuse to take pay into the common uh, wheel. And I think it's important to reflect politically as well as policy-wise that the delay in 2012, 2013, 2014 in coming to grips with this issue is costing us dear now or is costing Europe dear now because getting agreement on processing and on a relocation scheme would have been much easier in 2012, 2013 before the main bulk of arrivals came. And the Pope went to Lampedusa in 2014 and accused the world, actually, not just the European Union, of the globalisation of indifference. And he was right that Europe was focused on the Ukraine crisis, it was focused on the Euro crisis, it didn't have its eye on the ball when it came to the refugee crisis. And you know very well, playing policy catch-up is just very, very difficult when you've got a fast-moving situation. And how much do you think the focus on dealing with the the roots of the crisis should be part of European policy? Well, I think it's very important to to recognise that humanitarian aid has to be delivered for humanitarian reasons. But as long as the situation, for the sake of this conversation in Lebanon and uh, Jordan, was was under-resourced, you're inviting refugees concerned about the fact their kids have no education to think that their only future is going to be outside Jordan and Lebanon. Look, I started going to the Middle East in, for the, in this job in 2013. And it was evident that people had fled Aleppo or Daraa or Homs and they were concerned about themselves, the baker from Damascus who'd lost his business, bombed to hell. Uh, but they were also concerned about their kids. And essentially that exploded in 2014-15. Now the North African or the African route is rather different. That's now the main challenge for Europe. It's not really refugees coming from the Middle East, it's from North Africa. And you've got a much more mixed migration there. You've got many much bigger mix of people who are genuinely fleeing persecution in Nigeria or elsewhere, plus 
economic migrants, and that obviously raises very difficult issues. You've also got the situation in Libya, which is far less stable, to put it mildly, than the situation in Lebanon or Jordan or Turkey. Um, But in both cases, you've got to recognize that support for hosting states has to be part of the bargain, or you're essentially inviting people to try and make their, take their chance in getting to Europe, even if the risks of being killed on the route are much higher than you or I would ever want to think. And what about the, this whole question of the kind of internal... the Because, you know, it, the, it, when the crisis started erupting, you had these two starkly different ways of analysing and talking about the crisis. Angela Merkel who was talking in similar terms to the ones that you use in the book about our kind of moral responsibility, about our history, about the, the, the kind of different links which Europeans have had to many of the, the countries um, where people were fleeing their homes and our kind of direct responsibility for some of the conflicts that were taking place. And then you had Viktor Orban, who kind of stood for a, a different kind of approach, which was much more about... Um, the, the you know protection of Christian values against marauding hordes and was about closing borders and building walls and uh, rather than um, thinking about uh, our legal and moral obligations and strategic interests. Look, I think you're right to say there's polarisation, and in a way, Orban versus Merkel is one way of seeing it. But it's also, uh, frankly, in every town and city across Europe and across North America, there are people who are afraid of refugees, and there are people who say, "Hang on, this is an important part of our." moral and political and strategic responsibility. And it is a very polarised climate. I think the choice for Europe, though, is either that it has flows of people which are unmanaged, undocumented and unplanned, or it has flows of people which are managed, planned, legal and documented. That's the essential choice. And it's not actually open versus closed. It's managed versus unmanaged. And that's hard because it means devoting resource to a complicated problem where you've got bad actors trying to exploit both the refugees and Europe. The fact that we now have, one of the things I wanted to say is that Europe now has an entry and exit system. I mean, it sounds incredible, but until recently, Europe didn't have the legal muscle to track everyone who comes in, everyone who goes out, and also, by the way, everyone who's refused entry. And so the call to manage borders is not one that I think we should those of us who want to support the humanitarian heritage of the European Union and the humanitarian future of it, I don't think we should argue against the management of borders. Of course, borders have to be managed. The question is whether they're managed effectively, humanely, and in tune with European values and interests or not. And, I mean, I always thought this about the the argument about the wall in America. I mean, I'm obviously European. I live in America. The argument about the wall is slightly bizarre because there's 600-plus miles of wall already. And so when Donald Trump says, I want to have a wall... Uh, I started scratching my head and saying, well, isn't there a wall already in, in the US? The, the, the question is whether or not vulnerable people who need protection are given that protection when they cross into a country. And I think it's really important that Europe holds firm to the idea that it's not going to have people drowning in the Mediterranean, that it's not going to um, uh, chase the lowest common uh, denominator. It's actually going to uh, appeal to strategic interests as well as moral necessity. And those of us who want Europe to have a big heart have to be clear that it needs to have a hard and clear head as well. And I think the kind of proposals I make in my book, the arguments I make, uh, are arguments that are about our interests as well as our values. So if you were looking forward and, you know, if you were going to a meeting of the European Council and briefing heads of state 
um, and government about. That's only what they only need those of you do. in such influential <laughs> positions as the head of the ECFR are, in, are, in, are invited to do that these days. Um, what would you, if you had to put forward an action plan for, for EU member states now, what, what, would, what would be in it? Well, clearly, you've got to touch the three or four key bases to it. You've got to have effective humanitarian aid programs that assuage the suffering in the uh, countries of origin. You, you've got to have an effective refugee resettlement system as fast as possible. You've got to thirdly have an effective asylum processing system that is fast, efficient and humane, which by the way, and the Pope says this, includes returns because otherwise you'll lose the uh, support of your own uh, populations. You need a a burden sharing or a responsibility sharing system for those who are uh, allowed to stay. Um, And critically, you need an effective integration program. I mean, Roy Jenkins, uh, I cite in my book, British Home Secretary in the 60s, he contrasted, he, he, he spoke strongly to argue that assimilation was not the right goal, but integration is the right goal. And I think he's right about that. We run, the International Rescue Committee is an international humanitarian aid organization, as you say, with 27,000 staff. But we're also a refugee resettlement agency in the US, in 28 US cities. And our goal is not resettlement. Our goal is successful integration into society. Resettlement is just the step on the move. But once people arrive at the airport, they need to be getting got into work, their kids need to be going to school, they need to learn the language, etc. And I think if you can start ticking those boxes, you'll not only fulfill a policy demand, you'll also have a political demand. Now, there's two other things that are important if you're going to look at this in the round. One, there's a crisis of diplomacy. This is something that ECFR writes about, but and I sat through the UN General Assembly this year. Where were the proposals on Yemen, on Afghanistan, on South Sudan, on uh, the, the host of conflicts that are marring the global landscape. In truth, there was precious little, and the, there is a crisis of peacemaking and uh, peace building. Finally, I think the argument has to be taken on, you referred to it, about what is Europe. Is Europe a land of a singular identity? Um, sometimes in, you quoted Victor Orban saying it's a Christian heritage, some people call it a Judeo Christian heritage, uh, or is the essence of Europe? an enlightened pluralism. And that argument has to be taken on effectively. And pluralism is not the same as a free-for-all, um, but pluralism does insist on the integrity and the validity of individual uh, identities being um, diverse. And that, I think, is a, a core argument for Europe that Europe has to, be take, has to take on. You, you can't win the policy argument unless you're willing to take on the political argument too. So how do you think that this political battle can be won because one of the really striking things about Europe at the moment is how divided almost all member states are between the communitarians and the cosmopolitans between people who who uh, are seen as citizens from uh, from nowhere and citizens from from somewhere there is this kind of fight in every country about how you define national identity and uh, increasingly these sorts of debates about identity are crowding out traditional politics, allowing people to to come to power, to, to displace parties that have been arguing for the sorts of ideas that you've been arguing for. And, and Macron obviously managed to win in that environment. But in many other countries, what you're seeing is mainstream parties being dragged 
further and further away from the kind of agenda you're talking about. Even in Germany, it's very striking how after sticking her neck out and showing great bravery, Angela Merkel, in a way, relies on on the fact that borders have been closed by Viktor Orban. Her party uh, admires him. Many people in her party, and particularly in the CSU, admire him more than, than her. And since the election, she's been dragged even into um, committing herself to a, a limit of 200,000 refugees. Yeah, but coming, per from year the, in first of all, coming from the US, a limit of 200,000 <laughs> in a country that's halving the number of refugees are allowed to come to 45,000 uh, doesn't look too bad. And incidentally, secondly, I don't accept that I'm a citizen of nowhere. And one shouldn't just uh, accept this effectively pejorative um, description of those of us who insist that it's one thing to have deep roots. That doesn't stop you having broad wings. And I think it's really important to push back on that. But there, look, I want to answer your question directly by saying two things are absolutely essential. One, in a low-growth scenario, it's very hard to stop identity politics trumping all other concerns. And Europe has to get out of its low-growth trap. The posture that combined austerity with reform is very, very dangerous. We have to get into a pro-growth, i.e. anti-austerity, pro-reform position. And that's the position that I think Macron is trying to get into. And I think some of the confidence that's flowing through European veins at the moment in business reflects the fact that there's a chance he's going to get that. The second is obviously the refugee crisis has to be itself managed properly. This isn't fundamentally, in the first instance, a question of narrative. It's a question of policy management. And it's only if you manage it properly that you can frame it properly. Because if we're arguing about whether or not policy is under control, you're on a loser. If you're arguing about what kind of policy you should have, there's a chance you can win. And I always remind people from a UK perspective, at the moment, the UK is taking six refugees per parliamentary constituency. No one is going to persuade me that I could not persuade the citizens of South Shields, who I used to represent, that six people are going to overwhelm the constituency in the space of a year, a constituency of 65,000 people. And we've got to make sure that there is that, uh, the effective management that allows the, the argument to be prosecuted. But it's on those two pillars that any kind of resting back of control rests. But the UK is a very interesting example of a country that had a very exclusive, nationalistic, closed version of, of its story during the 80s. And then, in fact, when Tony Blair came to power, you were part of a government that was very rooted, very patriotic, and, but tried to redefine the national story and tell a story which was about values, about civic identity, the celebration of common institutions like the National Health Service and found a way of reaching out to all the different communities that lived in the country and, and telling them a story about how they were part of big, something bigger than themselves. And it seemed incredibly successful, so successful, in fact, that the Conservative Party embraced it as well. But the net result of that does seem to have been that many of the people who uh, felt like they were part of the old Thatcherite, more closed version of, of Englishness, I suppose, more than Britishness, suddenly felt like strangers in their country. And in some ways, I think the Brexit vote, I mean, there are lots of reasons for the Brexit vote, but part of it was a revenge from those people who felt that they had lost control of the, the national story. And even though they were a minority, they were quite mobilised by the sense that the country was going. I mean, I, I, it seems that that is part of the danger 
in many countries that um, it's not just about economic concerns, that there is a, a way in which societies are changing. And as we become more open, more connected to the world, and the, the sort of tolerance and diversity in societies increases, that creates a, a, back, a powerful backlash from those who felt that they were in control, but whose status is being well, undermined I, by those changes. I, I would put it slightly differently. I would say that the real challenge is not that people lost control of a national narrative. They felt they'd lost control of their own narrative. Yeah. And strikingly, they did so in places that are not the urban melting pots. Where there are the most immigrants and refugees, there is actually not just the greatest, quote-unquote, tolerance, which is a word I, I don't like using, because it, you tolerate things that are actually bad, whereas yeah. um, you respect or you embrace things that are good. And it's striking to me that the most dynamic, successful parts of the European economy are also the most diverse and the most at home with their diversity. And so that reinforces for me that, look, 65% of people in my former constituency voted against staying in the European Union, not because South Shields has been, quote-unquote, flooded with immigrants. Uh, in fact, it has a very low percentage of immigrants in South Shields. I think that it's more that people lost a sense of hope that their own destiny was going to be improved. And that's the political economy that I think we have to reclaim. I'm not an economic reductionist. I do think these issues of identity matter in and of themselves. But unless you can give people a sense of, of economic hope, if you, unless you can reunite economics and politics, then I think we're in a very difficult situation. So how do you, um, you know, now that you sit across the ocean from the, from the European Union, from the, from the British <laughs> debates that are going on at the moment. What's your kind of uh, sense about the, the future of Europe? Are you feeling optimistic I, and energised? I'm more energized optimistic than I've been for a long time. I think it's been a, quite hard in the US over the last two or three years to persuade people that Europe was a project worth investing in. Now, actually, there's quite a lot of excitement about Europe. There's a sense of... Uh, openness, a sense of possibility, a sense of uh, vigorous leadership. Um, people are vaguely aware that there's an east-west split uh, emerging and that's dangerous. They know about nationalist populist movements. But I think there's also a sense that Europe is going to give it a go. And the economy is ticking up. Business investment is ticking up. Europe, uh, America's in retreat, so people are looking to uh, Europe. I, I think it's a time when actually, notwithstanding the trauma of Brexit... Uh, both for Britain and to some extent for Europe, it's easier to paint a more optimistic European picture. And what role do you think foreign policy can play in that? Because, I mean, a long time ago, your name was once in the fray to be there. Oh, happy the, days, <laughs> happy days. <laughs> the high rep. Um, but um, it, it does seem that the next wave of European integration is more likely to be driven by foreign policy, by security, by defence, than by economic integration projects. I mean, obviously, there's some unfinished business around the euro, but... Uh, I, mean, I would have said it's actually going to be in the economic and energy and political realm, but I do think that there's space for Europe to be an effective global foreign policy actor. I mean, the Chinese are reinvesting in the European political project. Uh, they... Europe and China are both status quo powers in the global system rather than revisionist powers. America's become a revisionist power, or at least the Trump administration has become a revisionist power in the global uh, system. Uh, Europe's got to be careful not to get played, but it's also um, on the fulcrum of this very challenging issue of how to deal with a declining Russia. And so Europe, just by virtue of geography, never mind history, and current um, events in other countries, 
has a, a vital foreign policy role. And I think that actually the people remark on the increasing cohesiveness of the European member states. That's not just in the face of Brexit. I think it's also in the face of Russia. I also think it's in the face of what's going on in the US. And to what extent do you think Europeans can actually uphold the liberal international order, as people call it in shorthand, on its own, when you're facing Trump and Putin and Erdogan and Modi and Xi Jinping? Well, I think it's hard to do it, quote-unquote, on your own. But, my goodness, it's worth trying, because the risks of not upholding that liberal international order are very, very high. And I think that Uh, the fact that the Chinese leadership should have decided to be a status quo power, to make themselves a status quo power, to double down on the global institutions, it creates an opportunity for Europe and and it's an opportunity to deal itself back into the multilateral game. Okay, Um, it's been fascinating talking to you, David. Um, You're going around uh, Europe, I think you're in Brussels uh, as well, talking about your ideas and about this this book um, and the things that are in it. We do one uh, last thing at the end of our podcast, which is to ask people what's on their bookshelves. What's on your bookshelf at the moment? So the two things on my Kindle that are, that are half or mainly read, um, Ed Luce's book on the end of Western liberalism, which is a happy fairy tale about the future of the global order, and also um, David Grossman's extraordinary novel called The Horse Who Walked Into a Bar. And the thing that's been on my bookshelf is Rescue, Refugees and the Political Crisis of Our Time, which is uh, David's book. It's very, very readable. It's a mere 130 pages and um, available from all good bookshops. And even available in audible format, so you, you can even have it read to you. There you go. Okay, well, if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, we hope that you'll let other people know about it by writing about it on your Facebook page or ours, tweeting about it, and above all, by heading to iTunes and giving us a rating or review on the iTunes page. And if you send me a link to your review at mark.leonard.ecfr.eu, you can be one of the last people to win one of these much-coveted ECFR podcast mugs which were produced for the End of the World uh, series, which say the end of the world is near, but the coffee is hot. But for now, from David Miliband and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Jonathan Hakenpoish, and our editor is Berlin Goemich.